We'll pray in just a few minutes. But you know, folks, there's a lot that's going on in our world. A lot going on in our world. People asking questions. Um, Just this last year in particular, I've had more conversations, I think, centered around Bible prophecy, the subject of the last days. And I know that any suggestion or mention of the book of Revelation is, is, it generates interest, especially in view of all that's going on in the world around us. Now, I do want to just say some things at the outset of our study. If all we do is come to the book of Revelation out of a sense of fueling our prophetic speculation, and that's it, then we've missed it. You understand what I'm saying? If it's just interest in prophecy, if it's just so that we can establish charts and get all of the answers that we want to some of the questions that we have, we've ultimately missed it. Let me tell you what the main emphasis of Revelation is. It's the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so in that way, Revelation is a book that provokes worship in our hearts as God's people almost unlike any other book of the Bible does, because here in this book of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, we have just a wonderful picture of who Jesus is, a picture of Christ in all of his glory, all of his majesty, his splendor. And so in that way, Revelation is intended to provoke worship uh, in the hearts of believers. So when you come to this book, you have to keep that in mind. Ultimately, I want to be a better worshiper as a result of a study through the last book of the Bible, a better worshiper, uh, a more committed believer, a disciple who understands my role in the mission of God to take the message of the gospel ultimately to the ends of the earth. Um, I love literature, I love to read, I love, I don't read a whole lot of fiction, but I do like to read fiction. Um, some of my favorite is, is some older works. Many of you are familiar with The Lord of the Rings, trilogy of books by J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, he was an English author, and really those books are fantasy novels, and I think maybe the nerd in me is about to come out, but just bear with me for a second. <clears throat> But the, the novel, it's based in a fictional land called Middle-earth, if you're familiar with the storyline. And originally, um, Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings as sort of a sequel to his children's book, The Hobbit. But he developed it into a larger work, and he wrote it over the course of a decade or more, from, really from 1937 to 1949. Now, if you know history, you know that that was a very uncertain time throughout the world. There was a lot that was going on in the world uh, in that decade. You had, of course, uh, Germany invading Poland in 1939. You had World War II. And so, in a very real way, the battle lines between good and evil were drawn between the Allied powers and the Axis powers. And Tolkien is writing this Lord of the Rings trilogy of books during this particular time. 
And, and the whole storyline of those books, it's, it's, it's good versus evil. The main antagonist in those books is a dark lord named Sauron who forges a ring of power by which he wants to rule over all of Middle Earth. And so as a foil to his sinister plot, you've got some little hobbits, Frodo Baggins and his three friends, and there's a fellowship that's formed and they're severely outnumbered, but the issue is the ring has got to be destroyed so that Middle Earth can be saved from the increasing encroaching darkness of Lord Sauron. All right, now, you know the movies. Peter Jackson, the filmmaker, made the movies, the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. I went to see those. One of the only movies I ever went at midnight when it was released, I went to see the very last one. I told you I'm somewhat of a geek. <clears throat> but here's the thing. Tolkien's work has been scrutinized down through the years. People tried to investigate its themes and its origins. What you may not realize was that Tolkien was a very close personal friend of C.S. Lewis. And you know that C.S. Lewis was a committed believer. C.S. Lewis was a great thinker. He was also an author. All of the Chronicles of Narnia, that series, very similar to Tolkien's writings. But it was Tolkien who had an influence in C.S. Lewis's life. And C.S. Lewis was an atheist, agnostic, and became a believer under Tolkien's influence. And it's interesting that both of those guys wrote fantasy works, both of which had Christian themes underlying those main works. And the main theme is the triumph of good over evil. And Tolkien's work really is about the return of a long-awaited and rightful king. And the world comes to that, the world doesn't understand that, but... He's speaking in code to Christians because we know exactly what Tolkien's referring to when he's referring to the return of the king. So with that in mind, I want you to take your Bible and turn to the very last book of the New Testament, <clears throat> Revelation chapter 1. And tonight we'll begin a fascinating study through this fascinating book, a book that's mystified and challenged the people of God throughout the centuries. And someone may ask the question, well, why would you choose such a mysterious book, you know, to want to spend some time studying? Why would you do that? To which I would simply say, why not? Imagine if you didn't have this last book of the Bible, which is a book of hope, which is ultimately a book that shows us how God has triumphed over evil, over Satan, over sin, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's some folks who've said that the book really can't be understood at all and should be avoided by the church and that studying it would be a waste of time because it just can't be understood. But if that's something you believe, then that totally ignores the statements that are made in the first few verses of the book which tell us that the content of the book is meant to be a source of encouragement and blessing to the people of God. So if revelation is intended by the Lord to be a source of encouragement to his people, a source of blessing to God's people, that means God intends for his people to understand its message. So that means it's not a book that is not really 
There's no ability to understand it. You can understand it through the work of God's Holy Spirit. God intends for his people to understand the message of revelation. And yet it is important that we not lose sight of the forest for all of the individual trees. So just by way of introduction, keep in mind that the main emphasis of Revelation really is the victory of the Lamb of God. Before it is a book about the future, before it's a book about prophecy and, and end times and all of that, the empire of Antichrist, the beast and 666 and the mark of the beast. Before it's any of that, this is a book that shows us how the Lamb of God is victorious. Jesus Christ has overcome and Jesus Christ will overcome. He has overcome and he will overcome. There is no defeat the victory for God's people was secured at the cross. And so that means Revelation isn't telling us of a victory that is still future. It's telling of us a victory that's a present reality because the victory was secured over the enemy of our souls 2,000 years ago. And yet, Jesus Christ will be victorious as sin will be completely done away with and Christ establishes his kingdom upon the earth. Uh, Warren Wiersbe has said of Revelation that John wrote this book to encourage first century believers who were experiencing great suffering. So if you've ever suffered, and in particular suffered for your faith, Revelation is intended to be a great source of encouragement. And really in every age of the church, the message of Revelation has brought comfort and hope to the people of God. And the reason is because its, its symbols are timeless and as such, they can be understood by believers in any period of history. The promises of Revelation are eternal and this is something that we can trust. Now folks, let me just tell you, times like we're living in call for endurance on the part of God's people. Endurance. These are not times for us to be fearful these are not times for us to cave in to despair, but these are times that call for a well-reasoned faith. I mean, just like we saw in Amos this past Sunday, uh, we live in an evil age, an evil time. Not evil in the sense of the calendar year, but evil in the sense that this present world system, this fallen system, is under the direction and influence of the evil one. And so history is moving to a conclusion and the devil is fighting against that conclusion with all of his might, even though he's already defeated. His ultimate demise happened 20 centuries ago as the Son of God died on a criminal's cross in the place of sinners. The cross was the death knell for the devil. Jesus rose in victory and power. He robbed the grave of its power and he secured the redemption of all who trust in him. Hell has been defeated. The Lamb of God has overcome and Revelation shows how he will overcome as what he inaugurated will one day be consummated in his return to the earth. Now listen, the last words of Jesus in the Bible are these words, Surely I'm coming quickly. You know, last words are important words. 
And these words, I'm coming soon, I'm coming quickly, these are intended to be a source of great confidence for the people of God. And so the second coming of Jesus, what is history moving toward? Uh, It's moving toward the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is what Titus 2.13 refers to as the blessed hope of believers. So the Bible has a lot to say about the end of human history, and we need to understand what it says about that subject, which strange as it may seem, it's, it's a subject that's avoided in the church of our day. It may be avoided because there are a lot of controversial issues related to the end of the age. There are a lot of things that we may not necessarily understand that we want to understand, and so out of fear of that particular subject, we don't approach that subject at all. But we do this to the poverty of our own souls. There's a lot of fear. This last year, there's been a lot of fear over the pandemic, over the situation of our government, over what people have sensed as being the instability of our times, division, and people wonder, what's the world coming to? Revelation tells us what it's coming to. It's coming to Jesus. And the time is coming when Jesus will return. And so we live in a secular world, and the world is becoming increasingly secular here in the West. Um, There are probably more atheists and agnostics now than at any other point in the history of our nation. And it would seem that throughout the West, biblical Christianity and confidence in what the Bible says is something that's diminishing. That's not to say that the church is on its way out. The church is not on its way out. The church is on its way up. (laughs) And yet, there is this sense of cultural acceptance of what the Bible teaches. As far as cultural acceptance is concerned, there is a wholesale rejection of Judeo-Christian ethic. And so as the culture then becomes increasingly secular, it's moving further and further away from the Bible. And let me tell you what's going to happen as a result of that. It's also going to move further and further into emptiness. And we as the church had better be ready because there will be a lot of people who've turned to false saviors thinking that those false saviors can save their soul and bring satisfaction to their empty soul when really the only thing that can save and satisfy is the gospel, the Lord Jesus, the hope that you and I have been given. And so the world and its philosophers have struggled with the ultimate questions of life, questions like this, why are we here? Uh, Where exactly are we headed? What's the purpose of history? Is there a purpose as far as history is concerned? Um, What's the meaning of life? And even though the world around us, I mean, society's made all of these technological advances, really doesn't seem like we've made any advances in terms of morality, human nature. We still have the same issues and problems that we've always had, and really our world is a tinderbox. I like what one old preacher said. He said, civilization's like a chimpanzee with a blowtorch in a room full of dynamite. (laughs) He said, we've made the world a neighborhood, but not a brotherhood. What is it that can take the world, which is a neighborhood, change it, transform it into a brotherhood. It's only the gospel of Jesus that can do that. So human life, okay? Um, Three possible views of history. Now, I've just got to say all of this just by way of introduction. I'll get to verse one and just, I told y'all that Jesus may come before we, 
All right, so, so you think about um, history. Just if I had to distill the view, humanity's most popular views of history, just the three simple answers, it would be this. The first view would be cyclical, okay? So I'm just going to write the word cycle. History is really a cycle, all right? A lot of Eastern religions, Eastern thought, Hinduism, the whole process of reincarnation sees human history not as something that's moving forward in a linear way, but something that's cyclical, okay? So, so think circle, think cycle. Think just endless, monotonous cycle over and over again. Nothing ever really changes. That's a view of a lot of Eastern religions. Um, and ultimately, we have no real significance in the grand scheme of things according to the cyclical view of history. Now, in the West, the West has typically had a different view um, where so many people in our society and culture are today, it's not so much the cyclical view of history that's held in the West uh, as it is sort of a naturalistic view. So think naturalism, okay? Um, Think natural, um, not supernatural, but na- this has given rise to s- the secular humanism, which is basically the religion of the West that puts man at the center. Man has become his own God. Rooted in evolutionary thought, you know, those who are uh, secular Western thinkers, they appeal to science, reason, logic. They know that the universe had a beginning, but it was an accidental beginning. And that accidental beginning sort of gave rise to uh, evolution and the process of evolution. So the naturalistic view sees history as being linear, having a beginning, but a beginning that was not subject to the work of God because along this line of logic, there is no God, okay? But history's linear and therefore there really is no end in sight, It's not going anywhere of value. It's not going anywhere with a real sense of purpose. Now, folks, that's the predominant view of the culture that we live in. You understand what I'm saying? That's the predominant view of a lot of leading thinkers in the West, secular humanism that's ruled out. And by the way, this is just as much a faith, a religion, as evangelical Christianity. And I mentioned this Sunday, you know, the science behind all of this, nothing plus nothing equals everything. And that's insanity. It's illogical. All right, so, so the third view then of history, the third view would be biblical. Biblical. And the biblical view of history is linear, which means it has a beginning. But where is the beginning? According to the biblical view of history, there's a book of the Bible that explains to us in true precision detail where we came from, how we got here, 
who we are, and it's the book of Genesis. The book of beginnings, and that's what Genesis means, beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So there's our beginning. Human history begins with the creation of our first parents, Adam and Eve, made in the image of God. History is linear from that point. The fall happens in Genesis 3. We're, we're sort of let in on this idea that there is, there's a battle that's raging between good and evil, between the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman. There's a promise made, Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. It's a messianic reference to the coming of Jesus. And so all of redemptive history then begins flowing out of that one verse, and that's what the story of the Bible is really all about. But here's the thing. The biblical view of history has a beginning, but the biblical view of history also has an ending. And if Genesis is the book of beginning, then Revelation is the end. So human history has had a beginning as revealed in Genesis, and it has an ending. And that's revealed throughout the Bible, ultimately really culminating in this last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. So it's not cyclical. History is not linear with no purpose, but history, history is linear with a purpose. God is moving history to an intended conclusion, folks. And what's that conclusion? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let me tell you what this means. It means that you're significant. It means that your life is valuable to God. It means that you matter. It means that humanity is headed somewhere. And on this journey through time called human history, there is one central figure, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And Revelation reveals him to be the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. There's a lot of talk about the delta right now. Let me tell you about the alpha and the omega. And our lives are in his hands. So he's coming again. This is the message of Revelation. And the next time that he comes, he's not going to be coming in humility like the first coming of Jesus was. He's coming in power and glory. He's not coming to die. He's coming to rule and he's coming to reign. And so the second coming of Jesus Christ, this is what history is headed toward. And so history then is headed toward what the Bible calls the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. It's a phrase that you often find throughout the Old Testament. And if you want to know what the day of the Lord is referring to, it's referring to what's described in detail in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. The day of the Lord. So, so the purpose then of Revelation is to get Christian men and women, boys and girls, believers from all periods of history and in all circumstances, James Boyce says, to look at things from God's perspective rather than man's and to draw comfort and strength for daily living from that perspective. Do you have strength for daily living? 
Are you living with a worldview that really provides you with a great sense of hope, no matter what's going on in the world around you? No matter what you're hearing the doomsayers and the prophets of doom and gloom in the media say, do you have something that transcends all of that? Because let me tell you, that's what a biblical worldview and an understanding of what the message of Revelation says, that's what it will bring to you as a believer. You can live your life with confidence in these days. So just a few things to consider. Let's look at the text. Look at Revelation 1, verse 1. I just want to read through verse 3. The Bible begins by saying this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what's written in it, for the time is near. So really just in these three verses, you've got just a very brief introduction to Revelation and some summary statements as to what Revelation is really all about. So number one, notice with me what I'm calling the authorship of the book. You know, when you read a book or when you study a book, generally the first thing that you do is try to find out some information about the author of that book. If someone recommends a book for you to read, typically they will tell you in their recommendation who the author is. And if you peruse certain titles, a lot of times you look at who, some of you have favorite authors that you like to read. It's important that we understand the authorship of any book. And this is especially true when we're studying individual books of the Bible. Now, ultimately, we know that the Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible. Um, scripture was written over a period of about 1,600 years through 40 different human writers, but one author, and that author is the Holy Spirit of God himself. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The Greek word, uh, it's, it's theonoustos, God breathed. Scripture's God breathed. That includes the message of Revelation. And yet, it's also important that we understand who the human author is and the Bible tells us here, and history also tells us that it's the Apostle John, or one of the Lord's disciples, brother of James. So a couple of things to consider here. First of all, the title of the book. Before we look at John's life, think about the title of Revelation. Now, at times, all of us, I think, have been guilty of referring to this last book of the Bible as Revelations. But the word revelation is actually singular. This is not revelations, it's the revelation in a singular sense. This is one revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the title of the book comes from the very first word of the book in the Greek text. And the word is apocalypsis. It's the word we get the word apocalypse from. I think older translations uh, even name this last book of the Bible, the Apocalypse of John. Okay, but that word apocalypse, it comes from this Greek word apocalypsis. Now, when you think of apocalypse, I know exactly what comes to your mind. You're thinking movies, 2012, day after tomorrow, you know, Jurassic Park, I don't know. 
You think cataclysmic events. You think end of times type stuff. You think of just end of the world scenario when you hear that word apocalypse. But the Greek word apocalypsis is a word that means more than just catastrophe or cataclysm. It's a word that means unveiling. It's the idea of pulling back a curtain. Let's say that there's a sculptor who has sculptured a bust and uh, there's a viewing of this particular bust, but as the crowd's assembled, the bust is concealed with some type of a drape that at just the right moment, the sculptor pulls back the curtain, pulls back the drape so that the audience can finally see the bust. That's the word apocalypsis, unveiling. So the idea is the Spirit of God is pulling back the curtain so that we can have a glimpse of who Jesus really is in all of his glory and all of his majesty. You think about the revelation. Uh, this is not simply the revelation of something, but it's the revelation of someone. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, who he is in all of his power, in all of his glory. He's the radiant Christ. And so what's being unveiled then is how Jesus is coming, the kingdom ultimately belongs to him and to his people, and through Christ we are more than conquerors. So the fact that this is an unveiling, this means that Revelation is an open book that's meant to be understood. In fact, the very last chapter, in some of the last verses of Revelation, John is specifically told to not seal up the book. Now you compare that to what Daniel was told. And Daniel was told in the last chapter of his prophetic book, Daniel shut up the words and sealed the book until the time of the end. Well, the opposite is being told the Apostle John. Okay, so why is that important? It's important because God wants his people to know that no matter how dark the skies may become around us and above us, no matter how fierce the winds of hostility may become against us, his redemptive purpose will never be shaken. No matter what kind of pressure the church has faced in the past, no matter what kind of pressure the church is going to face in the future, we can be confident, we can live with hope, we can live with joy and be enthusiastic as we go about the mission of making disciples because the redemptive purpose of Jesus Christ will never be shaken. And so that's why Revelation is a book where the plan of God has been revealed to God's people for the ages. Now, that's not to say that every little detail in Revelation will neatly fit in our prophecy charts. There's some symbolic language. This message is being conveyed through signs, and it's something else that's said in the text. But it doesn't mean that Revelation is unclear, that the meaning is unclear. No, the message is unmistakable. And the message is that Jesus Christ is Lord and he's our victorious coming king. So that's the title. Now think about the writer. The inspired writer is John the Lord's servant as he's referred to there in verse number one. This was the same John who was the disciple of Jesus. The same John who was the writer of the fourth gospel that bears his name as well as three epistles or letters. First, second, third John. 
And there's plenty of evidence throughout the early history of the church, the writings of the church fathers, that it was John the Apostle who was the, the writer, the author of the book of Revelation. Now, we know that he was in exile. In fact, he says as much there down in verse number nine. He says, I, John, your partner in the tribulation of the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on an island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So he was persecuted for his faith, and part of that persecution involved John being exiled to a prison colony uh, on the island of Patmos, which was just off the coast of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. I don't know if you can see this on the screen behind me, but over here to the left of the screen, you've, you've got a picture of Patmos, just a very small, rocky island, 25 miles out in the Aegean Sea, off the coast of Asia Minor here. So you see here, you've got Patmos off the coast. You've got seven cities where there are seven churches that are being addressed in the opening chapters of Revelation. John's going to address this book to those seven churches in Asia Minor. So put yourself in his sandals for just a moment. You're exiled for your faith, a Roman prison colony. You're not being put up at the Ritz-Carlton here, okay? But he's there in exile. At this particular point in his life, he's probably in his early 90s. And it's there in this place of extreme isolation that John receives his greatest revelation from the Lord. You don't think God knows where to find you? You ever think you've ever hit rock bottom and you're just at a low point in your life and God doesn't know where to find you? Let me tell you something. If he can find one of his disciples 25 miles on a little remote rock in the Aegean Sea and give the greatest revelation ever given, he knows exactly where you are. And he can encourage your soul in weary seasons and times of isolation. And Man, that's a good word, especially coming after a year of lockdowns and isolation and shutdowns and all this stuff. So, so John the Apostle, there's a process of inspiration by which the Spirit of God inspires John to write. John even tells us what this involved. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God the Father gave him, who then in turn gave it to his angel. And that angel in turn was dispatched to John, who's on Patmos. And the message of that vision is given to John. So John's message involves words. It also involves something that he was shown by way of sight. So John really is assuming the role of prophet, which is why he refers to this book as prophecy in verse number three. This is the only book of prophecy in the New Testament. Now you compare that to a lot of other books in the Old Testament that are also books of prophecy. You think about the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, the minor prophets like Amos, Jonah. Minor, not in the sense that their message wasn't important, but minor in terms of their length as compared to the major prophets. But the ministry of the prophet was really twofold. It involved foretelling, obviously, as God impressed upon the prophet's heart or showed the prophet through prophetic vision uh, what was coming for God's people. But really the second and, and, and the most important part of the prophet's ministry was that of forth telling, speaking the truth, 
Think of preaching as, as forthtelling, speaking in forms of propositional truth, communicating God's word. This is what John is doing here in Revelation. He's forthtelling and foretelling future events as far as God's redemptive plan is concerned for history. And it's amazing when you think about how John is so saturated in the Old Testament. Now, there's no one direct reference to the Old Testament in the 22 chapters of Revelation. However, one person has estimated that of the 404 verses of Revelation, 278 of those verses contain one or more allusions to Old Testament passages. So not a specific reference, but an allusion to Old Testament truth. Now you think about this, a good working knowledge of Daniel, a good working knowledge of what God revealed as far as his plan for Israel, what God, his plan is in terms of the millennial kingdom and all of that, promises made in the Old Testament that revelation will show how they're going to one day be fulfilled in a very literal, specific way when Jesus comes again. So John, Jewish background, he knew his Bible. He knew his Bible. So what about the intended recipients then of the book? If you consider its title, you consider its writer, what about those to whom the book is addressed? Well, if you go down to verse number four, you'll notice that John, and by the way, this is a letter. It is a book of prophecy, but it also uh, is a letter, much like the other letters of the New Testament. So you've got the author stating his name, and then he's stating the recipients of the letter. John is writing to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor. What are those churches? Well, they're mentioned by name in chapters two and three. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These were actual churches in this principal um, area, cities in the Roman Empire at the day, at the time, what's modern day Turkey. And so the letter was written sort of intended to be a circular letter that very well might have been carried by a clerk who was bearing the book for all seven churches so that the letter could be read in their gathered assembly. And yet, more than likely, there's, there's perhaps a bit more to the reference seven there. The book is addressed to seven literal churches, but seven is a very important number throughout the book of Revelation. You've got seven churches, seven lampstands, seven stars, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bold judgments. And so seven has a symbolic purpose that represents fullness or completion. So the seven churches, though they're literal specific churches in John's day, they're also more than likely representative of the universal church. And in that way, they're addressed to believers of every generation, local churches just like our local church. So there's a very applicable, specific message that's authoritative even for our church some 20 centuries removed from the fact. All right, so that's the recipients. And then what about context? <clears throat> the important context or the immediate context of Revelation. When was it written? What were the times like? Well, Revelation was written in a period of intense persecution and trial 
for some of these recipient churches. And it was written with a mind to encourage believers that were they to be called upon to suffer or even die for their faith, they needed to know that their victory was sure along with the defeat of God's enemies. And so that message would be a great encouragement to believers across the centuries, no matter when it was written. That's why Revelation really is a prophetic book of hope for the church living in perilous times. Now, a lot of Bible scholars have pointed out really the crisis described in Revelation, and more than likely, as far as historical context, we identify the book of Revelation with one of the imperial persecutions launched under Rome's emperors. So as far as an actual date, most scholars will date it around 95 AD under the reign of Domitian, who was the emperor of Rome. Now some would take an earlier date and date it during the reign of Nero, roughly 30 years or so before Domitian. But the earlier view is problematic for a variety of reasons, and I'm not going to get into any of that. But Domitian, we know that he was a bad guy as far as history is concerned, and that's an understatement. He joins, with, he joins ranks with Nero and Caligula as the most sadistic of Rome's emperor, emperors. There's a picture of him right there. There was a Roman senator and historian by the name of Cassius Dio who said this about Domitian. He said, Domitian had this worst quality of all, that he desired to be flattered and was equally displeased with both sorts of men, those who paid homage to him and those who did not. With the former because they seemed to be flattering him and with the latter because they seemed to despise him. So in other words, he didn't like anybody. And nobody really liked him. But you see, it's under Domitian that the imperial cult really begins to be Formed. And what that is, it basically became state policy throughout the Roman Empire for the citizens of the empire to worship the emperor. To add the worship of emperor to their liturgical services, their pantheon of gods. Only the Jews were exempted from this. And for a while, Christianity was viewed as being a sect or an offshoot of Judaism, but the Jews distanced themselves from the Christians and persecuted the Christians, and so the Christians were kind of left sort of hanging out to dry. They had no legal protections, and one thing that the Christians would not do was bow the knee to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord, because Christians know that Jesus is Lord. So Domitian demanded to be worshipped. In fact, he wanted everyone to refer to him as Lord and God. And that was something that Christians would not do. Now, we'll say this for just a second. You think about persecution under Rome. I know we have our ideas. We've read some things about how believers, believers were thrown to the lions and Roman Colosseums, a lot of bloodshed, crucifixions. Think about beheadings. The Apostle Paul was beheaded in Rome when Nero was emperor. Peter was crucified upside down when Nero was emperor. But when you think about persecution, the underlying reason for that was not so much because believers worshiped Jesus. Again, Rome was kind of tolerant as far as who you wanted to worship and how you wanted to worship and that kind of thing. The only thing that they demanded was that you also 
worship Caesar. And so Caesar worship, emperor worship, was a means by which the law in Rome tried to unify the empire. If the citizens throughout the empire would burn a pinch of incense to the, to the emperor, would worship the, and say the emperor is Lord, then that sort of put down rebellions and that kind of thing. It was just go along with the rest of society so that there can be unity in the empire. Francis Schaeffer, listen to this. If believers had worshiped Jesus and Caesar, they would have gone unharmed. But they rejected all forms of syncretism. They worshiped the God who had revealed himself in the Old Testament through Christ and in the New Testament, which had gradually been written, and they worshiped him only. They allowed no mixture. All other gods were seen as false gods. Now listen to this statement right here. No totalitarian authority or authoritarian state can tolerate those who have an absolute by which to judge that state and its actions. So you come along as a Christian and you say there's a higher authority than Caesar. Government is not God. God is God. Government does not give basic rights to its citizens. God gives basic rights to its citizens. We have constitutional rights as citizens of the United States. Let me tell you something. The framers understood the source of those rights, inalienable rights. Humanity's been endowed by his creator with certain inalienable rights, not the government. But you see, when you've got a secular humanistic society that's denied the existence of that creator, don't be surprised when that government assumes the place of that creator. And that's what was happening in Rome. And the state couldn't tolerate anyone who bowed to a higher authority than Caesar himself. And so to the lions went the Christians. Let me ask you a question. Are you prepared for that kind of thing? Should that thing happen in your lifetime? Are you prepared for that kind of thing? Are you prepared to risk losing your job for pledging allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord? Are, are you that convinced? Are you, are you prepared? You say it'll never happen. Folks, it's happened over and over again through the 20 centuries of church history. And religious liberty has always been the exception in a society and not the norm. And it's a fragile thing. And it comes as no surprise to you tonight for me to say that that's under attack. But let me tell you something. We don't fight our battles the same way the world fights its battles. We don't get ugly and demand our rights. We don't get ugly. Let me tell you what we do. We hit our knees and we, we witness. We take the gospel to the ends of the earth, beginning right here with our neighbors in High Point. What was it that gave rise to Western democracy really to begin with? I know that there's a lot that the West has looked to Rome as far as governmental ideas and separation of powers and all this. But folks, our constitution and the buildings and monuments and the, the capital of our nation 
on those monuments, you'll find the language of a society that recognized that humanity was subservient to deity, that there is a higher power to whom we bow. And so our society in many ways is unique in the sense that secular humanism and atheism has gone mainstream and has become public policy. And so God's people had better be prepared. Let me just hurry and close, okay? Because my time is gone. Let's talk about the approach of the book for just a moment. All right, how should the book of Revelation even be approached to begin with? One of the big issues with a study through the book of Revelation is the issue of interpretation. Interpretation. In seminary, we called this hermeneutics, the science of Bible interpretation. Everybody has a hermeneutic that they use when they read the Bible, whether you realize it or not. Hermeneutics comes from a Greek word that means to interpret. For a long time in church history, the allegorical method was a very popular way of interpreting the Bible. And so a lot of people read Revelation as simply being an allegorical book. It's all allegory. It's not allegory, it's prophecy. And so the general rule of thumb as far as hermeneutics is concerned, what interpretation is the best interpretation? Usually no interpretation. <laughs> Just letting scripture speak for itself. Accepting it at face value that what it says, it means what it says. So I'm just going to preach it like, it like it was written. Preach what it says. Okay? But there have been historically four approaches to the book of Revelation. I'll say more about this next week, but let me just give these to you tonight. There's been the preterist view. Preterist comes from a word that means past, a Latin word. And so those who've held to the preterist view of Revelation basically would say that it's already been fulfilled in the past. That it was future to John and those that he was writing to originally, but within their lifetimes, it, you know, it, it was fulfilled. And most preterists associate the fulfillment of Revelation with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. Some would even say, some preterists would even say the collapse of the Roman Empire. So Babylon the Great is fallen. You see later on in Revelation, that was a reference to the collapse of the Roman Empire. Okay, so that's the preterist view. Uh, it means that fulfillment was future from the point of view of the author, but it's past from our vantage point. Now that's one view. Another view throughout church history was the historicist view or the historical view. Whatever's easier for you to say, pronounce. It's hard for me to say historicist, okay? So I'm gonna say historical. But basically, the historical view sees the book of Revelation as a panoramic sweep of the church age. Really from Pentecost all the way up to the coming of Jesus. From the ascension of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus, the whole of Revelation is a panoramic sweep of the church age. That's the historical view. Now, this was the predominant Protestant view coming out of the Protestant Reformation. So a lot of your reformers held to this particular view. They saw it as just being a sweep of history. 
Another view is the idealist view. And the idealist approach doesn't locate the events of Revelation to any one specific time period, but sees it as drama that sort of transcends events and points to just this cosmic battle between good and evil. So again, it's more allegory, depicting spiritual realities, not literal realities. That's the idealist view. A lot of your more theological liberal types would fall probably into this particular category. All right, the fourth view, the futurist view. The futurist approach sees the bulk of Revelation as events which are still to come. And it asserts that the majority of the prophecies of the book, visions of the book, have not been fulfilled and are therefore still to come. And those who hold to this approach generally apply everything from chapter 4 on to a relatively brief period of time known as the tribulation period or Daniel's 70th week from Daniel chapter 9 and it culminates in the return of Jesus Christ. Now, personally, I'm of the conviction that this book is future. So I would land right here in this futurist view of Revelation as would a lot of your more conservative scholars that tend to take a very literal interpretation of the book, a face value interpretation of the book. Now, there's still a lot of symbolism, to be fair, picturesque language. But again, as with all of Scripture, I believe the best approach is a straightforward historical grammatical approach. And so some people say, well, you really can't understand the Bible. You've got to have somebody explain it to you. Folks, let me tell you, when you got saved, the Holy Spirit, the author of the Bible, came to live in your heart and life. And he illuminates the minds of his people. And God wrote, the, the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, street Greek, so that the average common man and woman could understand its message. Don't tell me God that he wants you to understand the book. He wants you to understand his word. The last thing's the assurance of the book. There's a promise mentioned in verse three. There's a very special blessing, a very special promise attached. What's the promise? Blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Those who hear, those who keep what's written in it for the time is near. So there's a promise that's made. There's a proximity that's mentioned. What's that proximity? Folks, the time is near. And if that was true in John's day, how much more true is it in our day? The time is near. Jesus is coming again. Wow. Would you stand with me tonight as we close? Now, that's just introduction, okay? And let me just tell you this. You read the message of Revelation, and let me tell you, it provides you with incentive to worship. I want to worship the Lord Jesus Christ with every fiber of my being. I want to serve him. I want to hear him say, well done, one day when I stand before him. I really do. Don't you want to worship the Lord? 
Every act of my life, I want it to be an act of worship for the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Revelation's impetus for holy living, he says, I'm coming quickly. Are you ready? Revelation's influential and helpful in terms of personal evangelism. It ought to motivate us as God's people to share our faith. If you're not a believer in Jesus, if you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, the urgency of this book brings you to this point of decision. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Very last few verses of the book, he says, if you're thirsty, come and have a drink. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let me tell you, this book is instructive for your faith. It'll build up your faith. It'll help you when you encounter suffering and pain. It'll bring you stability especially in chaotic times such as these. So, Lord, in Jesus' name, we pray tonight. We're thankful. Lord, for this last book of the Bible, a mysterious book, a fascinating book, but one, Lord, that you intend for your people to understand and obey. Lord Jesus, you're coming again, and the world desperately needs to know you. Many of us have people in our family, people we work with, we live beside who aren't saved. Lord, may we share the gospel and Lord, invite folks to church. Lord, to be your hands and feet, to be salt, to be light and point other people to the hope that we have in Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who's overcome and through him, we too are more than conquerors. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said together, amen. amen.